you have your Bibles, I invite you to turn to the book of Lamentations. Lamentations, as with Jeremiah, last week that we looked at, if you open your Bible towards the middle, you'll probably hit the book of Isaiah. And then if you'll turn another book, you will come to Jeremiah. And then tucked away right after Jeremiah, before the book of Ezekiel, is the book of Lamentations. When I was in high school, we, uh, like probably most of you, studied American history. We studied American history, we studied world history, but one of the things that we spent quite a bit of time on, it seemed like, was always the wars uh, of our nation. We would always, uh, it seemed like history was defined by wars, obviously starting with the American Revolution, and then uh, the next big one that we would always talk about is the Civil War, and then World War One and World War Two, and then we would hit... Uh, uh, we would touch on Korea, but then we would talk a lot about Vietnam, and then we would pretty much be done because we ran out of time. We usually would get into Reagan's inauguration, and that's where we get cut off for the year. But one of the things that I remember hearing about as we talked about World War II was Pearl Harbor. And I remember talking to my grandpa who fought in World War II about Pearl Harbor and what it was like uh, to hear the radio broadcast, to, to see the images in the movie theaters and the newsreels, and to, 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 to feel what it was like to be there. And I felt like through just public education and the memories of my grandpa that I felt like I had a pretty good understanding of why it is still considered a dark day in American history. But at the same time, I wasn't there. I wasn't alive when Pearl Harbor happened. And so there was always a sort of, still is, a sort of distance between me and that event. It may still be a day of infamy, but it's not necessarily an infamy that immediately moves my heart to feelings of pain when I think about it. But then my generation was given its own day of infamy back in September of 2001. In the course of a day, suddenly my generation and my parents' generation knew very intimately the kind of kicked-in-the-gut feelings the previous generation had felt. Suddenly we knew. We knew what it was like to see devastation in our own country and feel the heart-wrenching pain as image after image after image of death passed before us. It was not death out on some remote battlefield, out in some country that we would never visit, but in a city that in many ways represented the very heart and soul of what it meant to be Americans. But imagine a September the 11th that lasted longer than a few hours on one day in the fall. Imagine a September 11th that began in 2001 and lasted until 2003. If you can fathom that level of destruction, if you can fathom that level of despair and pain and human suffering, then you'll begin to get at the experience the prophet Jeremiah went through in his own lifetime. Being in the outlying areas of Jerusalem and as uh, Jewish uh, tradition has it, hiding out in a cave, he sat for two years and watched his beloved homeland be overrun by the Babylonians, specifically the capital city of Jerusalem, the place where the temple mount was, the place where eventually our Savior would be crucified. He watched for two years the city fall under siege and eventually fall and be destroyed by the war machine of Babylon. 
Uh, if you've been here with us for the past several weeks and months, you will know that we have been tracing the storyline of the Bible. And we have seen a people called by God's grace, given salvation when they did not deserve it, uh, cleaned up as it were, as an abandoned infant on the side of the road, and adopted as God's child, the people of Israel. How even though they were called in grace, they repeatedly turned away from the God who saved them. They repeatedly rejected and spurned his calls for love and faithfulness. They stopped obeying the word that they promised they would obey. And now after warning them and warning them and warning them, God is bringing about the judgment that he said would come upon them for their sin. And while there was always a small faithful remnant of true believers among God's people Israel, the nation as a whole never turned back to God. Therefore, God allowed Assyria to come into the northern uh, uh, kingdom of Israel. And many years later, Babylon come to the southern uh, nation of Judah, sacking the capital cities, taking off many Israelites into exile and servitude in foreign nations. And here... As we even saw a little bit last week, Jeremiah was given the unfortunate experience of seeing the very center of Jewish life, Jerusalem, fall into the hands of the Babylonians. For two years, Jeremiah stood by helplessly and watched the city fall day after day after day. Wrapped up in this fall of Jerusalem was not just the grief of seeing physical devastation the sheer loss of life that took place, but it was also the spiritual realities that lay behind it. God's people had sinned. Now God's judgment was coming upon them. The book of Lamentations is Jeremiah's expression of pain and grief in the face of God's judgment. Lamentations takes its name from the word lament. And many of you will know that a lament is something like a funeral dirge that expresses the grief one feels over some sorrowful event. And yet, and yet, the best of the biblical laments never ultimately end in lament. Most of them, most of the Psalms, even the book of Lamentations itself, does not end with grief, but with something better. Jeremiah experienced horrors and despair that most of us will never come close to. Yet in the midst of that kind of grief and calamity, Jeremiah was still able to find hope. Specifically, he was able to find hope in God. In Lamentations chapter 3, Jeremiah begins by describing the human destruction that has been brought about because of his people's sin. In the darkest, in some ways, parts of the book, the reality the depressing reality of what has happened hangs over him like a brick cloud weighing on his soul. And yet the turn comes in verse 21. And this is what the prophet says. This I call to mind and therefore I have hope. The steadfast love of the Lord never ceases. His mercies never come to an end. They are new every morning. Great is your faithfulness. The Lord is my portion, says my soul. Therefore, I will hope in him. The Lord is good to those who wait for him, to the soul who seeks him. It is good that one should wait quietly for the salvation of the Lord. This is the word of God. As we sit here this morning thinking about our own sin and the physical and spiritual repercussions it can bring about, 
When we think about the moral and natural evil in the world, everything from terrorists to cancer, we must remember this. There is still hope in God. Specifically, Jeremiah sees in God himself character qualities that provide the basis for him having hope. And as we look at these things today, I hope that we together as God's people will be like Jeremiah, will be able, even in the midst of the most terrible of circumstances, to still be able to hope with confidence in God. So four truths that we want to see this morning from these verses. First is this. When we sin greatly... When we sin greatly, the Lord never ceases to love. When we sin greatly, the Lord never ceases to love. There are times in our life, many times in fact, when we suffer for no reason other than the fact we simply live in a broken world. The Bible is clear that through one man's sin into the world and death through sin. Because of Adam's first sin, all of God's creation has been now plunged into sin. And because this world is Fallen now in sin, we often suffer and experience pain. Just watching, just watching even my grandparents, my children's great-grandparents, just uh, in their life, not with a bang, but a whimper. Bodies wearing out, dying, contracting disease and being able, being unable to continue to fight against it. The, the, The weight of the fall is made all the more clear. But there are other times when it is, in fact, our sin that brings suffering into our life. This was true of the fall of Jerusalem. They experienced suffering and judgment because of their sinful rebellion against God. In chapter 1, Jeremiah laments and says, The Lord has afflicted her, that is Israel. The Lord has afflicted her for the multitude of her transgressions. The word transgression there is not just the word for sin. It's not as if God's people somehow fell backwards into sin. It's not as if somehow God had set a standard and they didn't know what that standard was. It's not as if they had accidentally broken the law. When we were up at the men's retreat uh, the other weekend, I was talking to one of our state workers and he talked about another state worker of a previous generation who was an avid reader to the point that he would actually read books while he was driving. And one time the police pulled him over and said, Sir, I I clocked you. Clocked you going 90 in a 70. And with complete and utter naivete and honesty, the man said, I am so sorry, officer. I got caught up reading this book while I was driving. In some sense, he sinned unintentionally, didn't he? He didn't mean to break the speed limit, but what he didn't realize, he was sinning reading that book. That's not Israel's case. The word for transgression means they clearly see this is what we should do. This is what we should not do. And we we do the things we shouldn't do. And we don't do the things that we should do. They intentionally rebelled against God. They intentionally thumbed their nose at Him and said, we're going to do what we want to do. Knowingly and willfully, they resist what God commanded. And ultimately, they did that because they did not believe that God was who he said he was. They didn't believe that he was good, that he was gracious, that he was merciful, that he was just. They said, no, we don't believe God is all those things because he's keeping us from doing the things we want to do. Therefore, we're going to ignore him and we're just going to follow the patterns of our own thinking. We will go after other idols and false gods that we think will do good for us. 
And as we've seen before, idolatry is very often compared with adultery. And so we see Jeremiah saying again later in chapter 1, Jerusalem sinned grievously, therefore she became filthy. All who honored her despise her, for they have seen her nakedness. She herself groans and turns her face away. Her uncleanness was in her skirts. She took no thought of her fortune, their, her future. Therefore her fall is terrible. She has no comforter. O Lord, behold my affliction, she says, for the enemy has triumphed. Israel went after false gods and never heeded the warnings of God to stop. God would say, this is not going to get you anywhere good. Turn away from the false gods and come back to me. But Jeremiah says she took no thought of her future. She didn't think God was really going to bring judgment on her. The people did not think God was actually going to punish them for their sins, so they did whatever they wanted to do. They knew God. They had his word. They worshipped at his temple, but they still turned their backs on him. They sin, and in the moment of Jerusalem's destruction, there appeared to be no hope for Israel. This was it. Again, Israel morally has been declining and declining and declining and declining. And sometimes you'll have a godly king. The last one was Josiah. And he tries desperately to bring reforms, to wipe out the false worship, to to get people to to obey the law. And he had this kind of upturn. But then his son comes, and the drop is even farther than any of the reforms that he tried to make. And things had gotten so bad that once the one people of God had split in two into two kingdoms and that, that northern kingdom went after sin all the more quickly and was pulled off the map and all there was left were these two tribes in the southern kingdom of Judah with Jerusalem, the capital city. And even then, the outlying ears were beginning to be picked off and picked off as God was, was preemptively warning the people, turn back to me, judgment is coming. Now the very center, the representation of the very heart of God's people, is gone. The walls have crumbled. The city has fallen. Where is the hope for God's people now? And yet, and yet despite that, that bleak, bleak picture, Jeremiah still says this. I will call this to mind, and therefore I have hope. The steadfast love of the Lord never ceases. Think about, just let those words wash over you for a minute. Here is Israel, God's people at, in some ways, its absolute worst. It's absolute worst. And yet Jeremiah can still say, even now I have hope. Because the steadfast love of the Lord never ceases. God's steadfast love is his covenant fidelity, his faithfulness to the covenant promises and the good of his people. And so while God is supremely holy and will judge sin, he is also forever loving towards his people and will not totally abandon them. Even now, in this new covenant era, Christians experience the covenant faithfulness, the steadfast love of God. If we are truly his people, though we sin grievously, God will never stop loving us. How many times when my children have done something particularly bad and spiteful and rebellious and they have been punished severely for that and I have looked at them and said, you need to understand that because I've punished you, it doesn't mean that I don't love you. You could do a lot worse than this and you will still be my son. You will still be my daughter. I will still love you. And to all who truly become children of God, adopted through faith in Christ. God says the very same thing. 
though you sin miserably, though you go off the reservation as it were, I will come after you. And I may discipline you severely, but it's only because I love you. And I want to draw you back to myself. Jeremiah says this is why he can have hope, even in the midst of seeing Jerusalem fall. Because he knows that even when his, God's people sin miserably, when they sin terribly, when they sin greatly, the steadfast love of the Lord never ceases. Secondly, Jeremiah had hope and we can have hope because when we grow weary, the Lord gives new mercies. When we grow weary, the Lord gives new mercies. By now, probably all of us have seen the video and the pictures of the devastation of Haiti. Just the other week, the estimated death toll was 230,000 people. And some of you have even participated in sending down uh, food relief to those who are in need. As we continue to hear the news stories, we realize that the situation is still fairly chaotic. And in fact, uh, because of the, the total disorganization of things down there, that sinful activities like child prostitution and drug trafficking are on the rise. And so even now, uh, Haiti stands as a, a place, as a, a country that still desperately needs our, play, our prayers as well as our financial generosity. But as bad as Haiti is, it does not hold a candle to the situation of Jerusalem in 586 when it fell to the Babylonians. Listen to the situation that Jeremiah describes in chapter 2. The Lord determined to lay ruin, lay in ruins the walls of the daughter of Zion. He stretched out the measuring line. He did not restrain his hand from destroying. He caused rampart and wall to lament. They languished together. The elders of the daughter of Zion sat on the ground in silence. They have thrown dust on their heads and put on sackcloth. The young women of Jerusalem have bowed their heads to the ground. My eyes are spent with weeping. My stomach churns. My bile is poured out to the ground because of the destruction of the daughter of my people. Because infants and babies faint in the streets in the city. They're crying to their mothers, where is bread and wine? As they faint like a wounded man in the streets of the city as their life is poured out on their mother's bosom. What can I say for you? To what, to what compare you, O daughter of Jerusalem? What can I liken to you that I may comfort you, O virgin daughter of Zion? For your ruin is vast as the sea. Who can heal you? And then we read some of the most disturbing words in the Bible as Jeremiah cries out, Look, O Lord, and see. With whom have you dealt thus? Should women eat the fruit of their womb, the children of their tender care? Should priest and prophet be killed in the sanctuary of the Lord? After two years of siege, Jerusalem is left with nothing. The city itself is destroyed. The young men have all died in battle or been carried off in exile. The older men are dying in the streets from starvation. Mothers are actually doing the unthinkable in order to stay alive. All this leaves Jeremiah and the other survivors emotionally spent. He says, I have cried to the point that I can cry no more. I have seen what is before me and I vomited at the sight of it. In chapter 5, he says, whatever stragglers are left, the joy of our hearts has ceased. Our dancing has been turned to mourning. The crown has fallen from our head. Woe to us, for we have sinned. For this, our heart has become sick. For these things, our eyes have grown dim. And then later he says, our pursuers are at our neck. We are weary. We are given no rest. Jeremiah is weary from grief. 
He has seen invasion and destruction in his homeland. He has seen warfare and famine to the point of the unthinkable. He has cried so much he cannot cry anymore. He sees the suffering and he has simply tapped out emotionally. He has nothing left to give. And yet he says he still has hope in God. This I call to mind and therefore I have hope. The steadfast love of the Lord never ceases. His mercies never come to an end. They are new every morning. Great is your faithfulness. Jeremiah can say, even in the midst of this, I'm still here. A few other stragglers are here. The people of God still exist. God is still merciful. But what's more, he gives me the mercy each and every day to put one foot in front of the other. God is faithful to his people. Some of us have been wearied by life. Some of us have been hit again and again and again by situations and we feel like we just cannot get up anymore. But even when we are going through the most unimaginable of circumstances, we need to remember God is still there with us. He doesn't just ask us to remember what he's done in the past and hope he's going to do something, as in hope that, well, I don't know, maybe he will and maybe he won't. No, he says, today I am here for you. Today I will be merciful to you. God never says, look back out of your thankfulness for my past mercy and live today. He says this, look back and remember my past mercy. Remember what I've done. Look to your own life and supremely look back to the cross of Christ. But then in your thankfulness, look to me now in faith. Look to me this very moment in faith. And know that because I have been merciful in the past, I will be merciful now. I will be merciful to you in the midst of your present pain. Trust that I will be merciful today. Each and every day, God gives his weary people the mercy they need to climb out of bed and have hope in despair every single day. The steadfast love of the Lord never ceases. His mercies never come to an end. They are new every morning. Great is your faithfulness, O Jeremiah gives us a third reason why he can hope in God. He says this, when we lose everything, the Lord is still our portion. When we lose everything, the Lord is our portion. Through God's judgment, virtually everything Jeremiah would have known as a way of life is now taken away. The three pillars of Israel's life, the very, the very things upon which their culture stood. Do you, do you remember what they were? It was the temple where they went and worshipped God. It was the law that he gave to them to direct their paths. And then it was the very land in which they resided. And now because of their sin, all three are lost. God takes all three of their pillars away. Back in chapter 2, Jeremiah says, God has laid waste his booth like a garden, laid in ruins his meeting place. The Lord has made Zion forget festival and Sabbath and in fierce indignation has spurned king and priest. The Lord has scorned his altar, disowned his sanctuary. He has delivered into the hand of the enemy the walls of her palaces. They raised the clamor in the house of the Lord as on the day of festival. God's people used to have the temple, the mark of his presence among them, but that wasn't true anymore. 
part of the judgment of God's people is that the temple would not just be destroyed, but pagans, people who worshipped false gods, people who had no, no concern whatsoever for the Lord, came in and made merry in the temple, rejoicing over Yahweh's apparent defeat at their hands. The visible symbol of God's presence among his people was torn down and done away with. Then later in chapter 2, Jeremiah says, The law is no more, and her prophets find no vision from the Lord. The law was central to the life of Israel. It was their covenant with God. And now they have broken it so often, God says, I've just pulled it right out of your hands. We're done. It's gone. Forget about it. Then in chapter 5, Jeremiah says, Our inheritance has been turned over to strangers, our homes to foreigners. Going all the way back to Abraham, one of the promises God gave was that he would bring from Abraham a great nation, a people that would be his people, to whom he would be their God, and he would give them a land in which to dwell and find peace and safety and prosperity. That was their inheritance. And now Jeremiah says that inheritance is gone. Most of them have been ripped out of their inheritance and carried off to Babylon. And now Babylonians have come and they have said, here's a nice house. And they've just taken up residence there. Here's a field with a little bit of fruit and vegetables. Now this is my fruit and vegetables. The promised land is no longer belonging to God's people. Jeremiah, along with them, have lost Everything that would have been precious to them. Everything that would have defined them as God's people. This morning when you think about that, have you ever lost everything? Maybe you didn't actually lose everything. But maybe you felt like it was everything. Perhaps you lost a job that you had had for years and suddenly you felt like your life had no direction. It had no meaning. That you didn't know where you were going to go or what you were going to do. Perhaps it was a loved one a family member, someone who was taken so quickly, so unexpectedly, so suddenly, it felt like your whole world was collapsing. When that happens, what do you do? Where do you look? Jeremiah has seen his people killed and carried away. He has seen the temple of the Lord he loved, desecrated and torn apart. Jeremiah has lost everything. But he can still say this. The Lord is my portion, says my soul. Therefore, I will hope in him. What does this mean, this idea of portion? In the law, when all the 12 tribes were being handed out portions of the promised land, the Levites, the priestly tribe, were told they would receive no land because the Lord would be their portion. He would take care of them. And now Jeremiah says this has become all too real for him. He has lost everything physical and tangible in his life, but he says that doesn't matter because I still have the Lord. I still have him. He is my greatest treasure, my most, preci- my most precious possession. Now, friends, is that true of you? I guess let's, let's put a finer point on it. 20 minutes ago, were you liars? Because here's what you sang. Knowing you, Jesus, knowing you, there is no greater thing. Now my heart's desire is to know you more to be found in you and be known as yours. You just sang along with me what Jeremiah says here. The Lord is my portion. Therefore, when everything else goes away, I can still have hope. The question is, do we really believe that this morning? Or is my kids and my wife my portion? 
Is my job my portion? Is my health my portion? Is what other people think of me my portion? What are you holding on to as the greatest treasure in your life? Your freedom, your liberty, your independence? Or is it knowing the Lord Jesus Christ? Jeremiah said when everything else was gone, the only reason why he could have hope was because he knew the Lord was his portion. Finally, we can hope in God because when we seek him, the Lord gives salvation. When we seek him, the Lord gives salvation. Jeremiah says this, This I call to mind, and therefore I have hope. The steadfast love of the Lord never ceases. His mercies never come to an end. They are new every morning. Great is your faithfulness. The Lord is my portion, says my soul, therefore I will hope in him. The Lord is good to those who wait for him, to the soul who seeks him. It is good that one should wait patiently for the salvation of the Lord. Jeremiah comes to some of the darkest parts of the Bible, and yet he finds hope. He is confident that even in the midst of his of judgment, the Lord is still good, and it is good for people to wait patiently for him to act on their behalf. About this, D.A. Carson says this. What Jeremiah says is a moral stance. It signals the end of self-sufficiency and self-focus that thought it could thumb its nose at God. For Jeremiah, the chastening is having its desired effect. It is driving people back to God. Jeremiah and others were driven back to God through discipline. They saw again that he was good. But can we say that today? Do we have confidence that God is good even when we experience pain, even when we experience suffering, even when our loved ones undergo pain and suffering? How can we be confident? We can be confident in this, that God is not far from us in our suffering. In fact, he knows all too well what we're going through. Because when Jesus came, he came into a life of suffering. He did not come to a life of ease. Regardless of what you hear on religious television, Jesus was not rich. He did not drive around in the first century equivalent of a Mercedes Benz and a Rolex suit. He was a pauper. He gave up all that he knew in the glories of heaven, all the praise of the angels, all authority and glory and honor, and he came down here to live a life of suffering for his people. When Jesus came, he did not come to live an easy life. In fact, he made it clear he came to suffer and to die. In Mark 10, he says, The Son of Man came not to serve, but to be served and to give his life as a ransom for many. Though Israel suffered because of their sins, Jesus never sinned. He suffered for the sins of others. He bore the judgment that was due his people. Furthermore, Jesus knew the weariness of life under sin. That weariness reached its climax the night before he went to the cross. Matthew tells us when Jesus went with them to a place called Gethsemane, he said to his disciples, sit here while I go over there and pray. And taking with him Peter and the two sons of Zebedee, he began to be sorrowful and troubled. And he said to them, my soul is sorrowful even to death. Remain here and watch with me. And going a little further, he fell on his face and prayed, My Father, if it be possible, let this cup pass from me. Nevertheless, not as I will, but as you will. He was about to bear the weight of God's judgment like no other for sin. And Jesus admits his soul is wearied even to the point of death. This burden is literally crushing him on the way to the cross. Finally, Jesus knew what it meant to lose everything. Not only did he give up the glories of heaven to come to take on flesh and to bear our sins, but in the course of a day, all of his friends deserted him or openly denied him once he was arrested. 
Jesus' own people who He came to save, the people of Israel, despised and rejected Him as their Messiah. We don't want that kind of a Christ, they said. Crucify Him! How would that make you feel to know all that you've left up, all that you've given up, all that you've gone through, all that you've done for them, the years, the decades, the centuries of loving and mercy, and now you actually take on flesh and so identify with your people so as to die for them. And they say, we don't want it. No thanks. Matthew tells us that the final indignity of Christ comes on the cross when he cries out, bearing the sins of the world, Eli, Eli, lama sabachthani. That is, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Jesus experienced the weight of sin, the weariness of life under sin, and the loss of all things to bear God's judgment for sin. And he did all of this for his people. On the cross, Jesus displayed the goodness of God who is not far off from his people in their despair. This is why Jeremiah can say, the Lord is good to those who wait for him, to the soul who seeks him. It is good that one should wait quietly for the salvation of the Lord. Despite the the horror of what took place in Jerusalem in 586, what took place in Jerusalem in 33 A.D., was far, far worse. And Jesus took all of it for sinners. Sinners like you and me. Even now when we deserve God's full wrath, we can call out to the Lord and receive His mercy knowing that He has already judged our sins in Christ. As we hear about how we should continue to have hope in God, why we can have hope in God, frankly, there is the danger that it still exists as some kind of theoretical life out there that maybe one day we can ascribe to. Does anybody really live that way? I end with an example. An example from the modern day of a couple who really do live out the kind of faith that Jeremiah had in God's goodness. In 1996, Susan Shelley, a director of Christian education at a church in Chicago, gave an interview to the magazine Christianity Today, and there she told her story. She began by talking about the birth of her first child, Mandy, who was born with microcephaly, an abnormally small head. She talked about the seizures that would grip Mandy several times a day, the constant medication, the visits to the hospital, the surgeries that they went through, the nights they spent without sleep, the tears that they shed, the tensions that came into their marriage as a result of all this trouble. Then unexpectedly, she talked about how she discovered she was pregnant again. She visited the doctor who told her in a detached, matter-of-fact voice that the fetus was malformed. The aorta in its heart attached incorrectly. There was a missing portion of the brain. The baby had a club foot, a cleft palate, a cleft tongue, and possibly spina bifida. The doctor says this condition of the fetus is incompatible with life, and he urged her to have an abortion to be scheduled that day. But she said no, and went full term and delivered a little baby boy. Upon delivery of that boy, the nurses asked her and her husband, do you have a name for him? She said, Toby. It's short for the Bible name, Tobiah, which means God is good. Later, when her husband was recounting the story to a group of alumni at Wheaton College, he concluded with these words, words, Life is hard, and God is good. Life is hard, and God is good. That is the message of Lamentations for us today. 
This I call to mind, and therefore I have hope. The steadfast love of the Lord never ceases. His mercies never come to an end. They are new every morning. Great is your faithfulness. The Lord is my portion, says my soul, therefore I will have hope. The Lord is good to those who wait for him, to the soul who seeks. It is good that one should wait quietly for the salvation of the Lord. Heavenly Father, as we have heard your word, as we have heard the testimony of your servant Jeremiah, God, he has not not hidden his sorrow and his pain from you. God, in Five chapters that are some of the most heart-wrenching, raw, and honest words in the Bible. And this book of Lamentations, he has poured out his soul to you in seeing the despair and the destruction of your people at Jerusalem. And yet, God, he still had hope in you. Hope in your faithfulness and your love and mercy and your goodness towards your people. Father, I pray that because of your demonstration of all these things, through Christ, that we ourselves will have confidence in your goodness in our lives and that despite the most difficult of circumstances, we will not despair, but we will have hope in you. It's in Jesus' name I pray. Amen. In response to the message this morning, I invite you to stand with me and to sing, Great is Thy Faithfulness.